You're very welcome back to News Talks on the Record with me, Kieran Cudahy, and time now for more hidden histories. Everyone's dying of hunger and they're putting food on a boat. He's a danger to us all. The English cannot be forgiven. It's a pretty dramatic trailer from the uh, new movie Black 47. Donald Fallon, my old mucker, is away this week. History, though, remains on the agenda. And earlier in the show today, we were talking about the myths that prevail around politics and society. And it's also something that we do see in history and how events are interpreted. And with Black 47 out, there's been a lot of talk about the Irish famine and a phrase or a description that's been used in some reviews, not all reviews, but in some, it's been Holocaust or genocide. But is that fair? We are joined on the line now by Liam Kennedy, Professor of History at Queen's University, Belfast. He's the author of Unhappy the Land, the most oppressed people ever, the Irish. Uh, Liam, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you. There are, I suppose, a lot of perceived wisdoms that exist around the famine, you know, from coffin ships to the evil Charles Trevelyan. We'll start with a big one, the famous saying that God sent the blight, but the English caused the famine. Is that fair? That's John Mitchell, of course. I mean, there's an element of truth in it. I mean, that's, I suppose, a feature of all historical myths, at least the more effective ones, that there's a grain of truth in there. I mean, it was an ecological disaster, and that was outside of any human intervention. But it is also the case that real people made a difference, and um, some of the policies pursued by Lord John Russell's government and as executed by Charles Trevelyan did intensify the effects of an ecological disaster. But, I mean, I suppose if one was interpreting that in pure Mitchellite terms, which is that the English committed mass destruction of people in Ireland, in other words, genocide. I mean, I don't know of any historian who has studied the famine in detail who abides by that position. The key issue is intentionality. Mm. Did did policymakers, did the English, and you know, to use a term like the English is a gross distortion anyhow, But did people at the time intend mass mortality on the scale that, you know, undoubtedly happened? And the answer is very clearly no. You can't have an accidental genocide. The idea, though, that I suppose laissez-faire economics intensified this and maybe it was well-intentioned, other people listening will point to some fairly reprehensible quotes that have been attributed to the likes of Charles Trevelyan or to the Lord Palmerston, and they'll say... This was quite obviously, when you read them, some Malthusian project being undertaken in Westminster, a kind of a thinning of the herd in Ireland, if you will. Yeah, certainly you can find quotations. They're usually selectively plucked out, I suppose. I mean, there were real dilemmas. It is easy in the comfort of the 21st century to offer, you know, almost sentimental solutions to what happened. There certainly could have been better policies and ones that were possible at the time. But it was a horrific catastrophe. I mean, in terms of scale, you know, at the height of the Black 47, you had three million people on outdoor rations, you know, attending soup kitchens. And that clearly was, you know, a real attempt to alleviate the worst effects of the famine. But that's three million out of something like eight and a half million people. You know, and you can't think of any contemporary society, perhaps outside of Syria, which is facing, you know, a crisis of that magnitude. Was there 
an inevitability then, given the economy that existed in Ireland, that there would be some scale of famine once the potato blight took hold? No, absolutely. I mean, when you have close on half the population, certainly about three million people, almost exclusively dependent on a single food source, disaster beckoned. To give a European reference point in a way, supposing wheat or maize in in parts of Italy, which um, people depended on heavily, had that been wiped out in season after season after season, in the way that the potato, the the staple food of the people, was wiped out, you would have had massive mortality. Why I ask that question is because there's also another story, I suppose, around the famine, that while the native Irish, if I call them that, were were dying of hunger, that huge cargo loads of grain were being exported from the country and that these kind of East Coast merchants and shipping magnets were actually making money and there was plenty of food. Well, the first part is true in that food was being exported from the island. The second part isn't, though. I mean, there simply wasn't the millions of kilocalories necessary to sustain a population of eight and a half millions once the main food crop, the potato, largely failed. And it's also true that some merchants, uh, not all, some went bankrupt, but some merchants certainly made large profits during the famine. We also have to look at the other side, which is food coming into Ireland. The focus, and particularly you would get this in John Mitchell and others writing in that vein, down to Arthur Griffith and into the 20th century, the focus is on food exports. But we need to remember that from the spring of 1847, there were massive food imports into Ireland. And it did actually make sense to export low-value, sorry, high-value cereals like wheat and to import cheaper nutritious food, uh, which was Indian meal or maize. So one needs to look at the two sides of the equation, not simply food exports, but also food imports coming into Ireland. I heard you speaking about this and you made an interesting point about coffin ships and about this notion Mm. that I suppose people, well, look, to an extent, you're taking your own lives, every decision you make, you're taking your own life into your hands. But the dangers or the perceived dangers that people were putting themselves under when they got on coffin ships has maybe been exaggerated. Is that fair? Yes, I mean, in a way, this image of a coffin ship has been generalized across the whole famine period. And there is no doubt some of those ships going to Gros Seal in Canada in 1847 had huge mortality, usually from disease rather, well, disease related to malnutrition, of course. But that wasn't the typical experience. Most emigrants did get emigrants going to North America. We need to remember also very many went to Britain, to England and Scotland. But of those going to North America, uh, which is the majority, in fact, you know, most survived. The the mortality rate was well under 5%. And there was mortality on ships from, you know, other parts of Europe going to North America at the time. So I think the point is one can, in a melodramatic way, magnify some of the undoubted, undoubted instances of overcrowded ships, poor sanitation, very limited medical care and so on, and generalize that to the the whole famine exodus. And that 
clearly is a misrepresentation. So in a sense, the coffinship image is a kind of myth. And so, you know, like all good myths, like all effective ones, there's an element of truth in there. So, you know, we're not denying the scale of the death and, and the immigration as well. Is it a case then that, look, famine was inevitable, such was the reliance on a single crop uh, and mm. the subsistence nature of it, that the decisions taken in Westminster exacerbated the problem, but this wasn't some kind of Malthusian plot, there wasn't an objective of thinning out the Irish countryside, that this was well-intentioned but ultimately misguided and it made things worse? Yeah, I, I, Kieran, I'd put it a little bit differently. Okay. I mean, by 1849, 1850, people like Trevelyan and others were trying to squeeze comfort out of what really is a catastrophe. So they talked about the thinning out of population and that this was laying the basis for a more prosperous post-famine society, which actually did happen. Irish incomes with time lag rose significantly in the later 19th century. And it's also the case that, no, there were political economists who thought this was an occasion, the, the opportunity should be seized to restructure Irish rural society, which I'm going to essentially a rural society. There were certainly people saying things like that. I mean, it's a hugely complex question. It's a very good one. That aspect is hugely complex. And remember also that the policies changed during the course of the famine. Um, you have three phases in a way. The first is using public work schemes, which at one stage employed about three quarters of a million people, and each of those would have four or five dependents. So it's huge, a massive public works program. That wasn't particularly effective. Then the second phase was a resort to soup kitchens, which most historians think was the most effective of the measures. And of course, it begs the question, why were they not continued? And then you had the third phase, which was relying on the poor law system, plus charity, of course, all through, to um, contain the crisis. And uh, I think the truth is the poor law system just couldn't cope with um, a disaster of this magnitude. But it, you know, it did save lives. All of those measures saved lives. But the mix of policies used wasn't, certainly with the benefit of hindsight, wasn't the best possible. But, I mean, broadly speaking... These are well-intentioned efforts to deal with an unprecedented crisis. All right, look, it is fascinating stuff. If people want to learn more, Liam's book is Unhappy the Land. Liam Kennedy, my thanks, Professor of Economic History at Queen's University.